Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. We are very lucky today to have Dr. Camille Cotton from Massachusetts General Hospital. She is the director of the uh, Clinical Transplant and Oncology Infectious Disease Program there. It has a different name, and she'll tell me how the correct name is, but the bottom line is that she's a fantastic clinician. And I read through the little blurb at MGH Harvard Medical School about her, and they mention all the, the wonderful and amazing things she's done, including being past leader of the uh, American Society of Transplantation Community of Clinical Practice for Infectious Disease. But they also put in there something which really, really struck home to me. And it says, basically, if you are a patient and she need, and you need to see her, she will find a way to see you. They, they say it much better than I do, but they, they say she has flexible scheduled availability, which I think is an amazing thing, uh, as amazing and as important as all the accomplishments. And there are many that she has. Welcome. Thanks. It's wonderful to be here with you. I'm really, I'm really honored. Thank you. Awesome. So uh, I was looking through your background and you started medical school in Chicago. Are you a Chicagoan? No, I am a native, um, native of Massachusetts, but ventured to the Midwest, which I absolutely loved. I was a little, as a native New Englander, I was a little taken aback by the friendliness of the Midwest, but came to love that. And then after that, moved to Philadelphia, which was also great training and great, great people. Um, I was at the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania. And then, and you might not know this, but I took a year off um, between residency and fellowship. And I actually traveled with what was then my new husband. And we spent time in Oregon doing locum tenens. And then India and Africa, we worked in Uganda and Malawi. So then I was primed to start ID fellowship. Amazing. Amazing. Uganda, I was just reading, now has almost eliminated the outbreak from the most recent outbreak of Ebola. So a lot of work to do in that country. Yeah. 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 They actually, when I was on rounds there, they tried to tell me someone had Ebola and they thought that was like Ugandan medical humor because it was just measles, but they were trying to convince me that it was Ebola. I like that Ugandan medical humor. And then both Uganda and Malawi have gorillas. Did you get to see any? So we were on a low budget tour at that point. So we did not see, we did not see the gorillas, but we saw a lot of, a lot of great stuff great stuff and great people and amazing, amazing medicine. And it was, it was really fabulous. We were astonished at how brilliant the healthcare providers were with very limited tools. Mm -hmm. And they really had to think a lot and, you know, very limited diagnostics, which is kind of the often the opposite. In the United States, we tend to send a lot of diagnostics and hope we kind of get the answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we love that experience. Yeah. When I was a uh, fellow, it occurred to me that without a CAT scan, I would really have difficulty. And I would say that in the uh, over 20 years since I finished fellowship, that's become even more so in, in that CAT scans are, are almost a part of the physical exam now. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let's dive into some cases. And the uh, first case is a 54-year-old man with history of adult polycystic kidney disease. He is CMV seropositive. The donor is CMV seropositive. And as part of a prophylaxis regimen based on this serology, he's been on valgancyclovir. 
along with the Valgancyclovir, he's also on mycophenolate, tacrolimus, and prednisone. And his white blood cell count has been drifting down to the point where right now he's in the neutropenic range, mild neutropenia, but neutropenia nonetheless, with an absolute neutrophil count of just dipping over a thousand. How do you approach a situation like this? He still has a few more weeks of Valgancyclovir prophylaxis ahead of him. Yeah, well, that you have just described such a common scenario for so many of us, right? So this is, I mean, it's amazing that we had the capacity to do such fit prophylaxis with Valgancyclovir. I did briefly know the pre-Valgancyclovir era, which was oral Gancyclovir, which was bioavailable at about 5%, so really kind of hard times. However, this is really the um, situation that we commonly commonly see, especially if we're doing longer prophylaxis courses. And it's multifactorial. You know, as you mentioned, the patient's on mycophenolate, mofetil, and Bactrim and may have gotten some induction. And, you know, this is, there are a lot of reasons why they can have kind of lowish white blood cell counts to begin with. I always say, let's look at the renal function. And that is actually a challenging topic. One thing we've noticed is that many many of these patients have chronic medical conditions and may have lower muscle mass. They may be somewhat deconditioned, whatever. So it can be a little less accurate to just look at the serum creatinine. And then we often have seen that basically these people have usually, you most people are on dialysis, so they have like pretty much nil kidney function. And then they get a single kidney transplant and sometimes you'll see in the computer, you know, that the GFR is like estimated to be 90. Like, where, is, where does that come from? They had a single kidney transplant. It's not like the donor likely had a GFR of 180. Mm-hmm. So it does seem like the computer overestimates. And then many people end up giving these folks Valganthiclovir 900 milligrams once a day, which is probably overdosing for many of the kidney recipients who often have a GFR in the sort of 50 to 60 range, almost no matter what the computer says. Like you have to kind of think about the situation, but it can be very hard to calculate their true GFR, especially in in patients with chronic medical conditions. So I always say like, look, look at the, you know, look at the creatinine over time, try to figure out what you think the clearance might be based on that. And then I'm including a lot of cystatin C uh, measurements. Mm. Some people do 24-hour urines. Nephrology seems a lot less engaged with that. They say it's often inaccurate and urines lost along the way and the numbers don't really add up. Some programs do nuclear medicine studies. We don't have the capacity to do that in my hospital, so we, we don't do it much. They have to go across town. So I say look at the true renal function, and that, that for me is the most important thing. Everybody who's on transplant rounds, we round every day with Transplant surgery and nephrology, nursing, hepatology, social work. It's great. But everybody knows my endless rants of what is the real renal function here. And uh, I think that's the most important thing. So many people are on Valganthiclovir 900 milligrams once a day after kidney transplant. And that is probably overdosing for many. Mm-hmm. I'm not recommending mini dosing. I'm just recommending dosing to the GFR. So most of our kidney patients are actually on Valganthiclovir 450 milligrams once a day. We do not have breakthrough. We do not have uh, virtually any resistant refractory disease. So we think we're dosing correctly. So that's the first move is what is the GFR? Dose the Valganthiclovir according to the GFR. Be very meticulous about that. And as we know, kidney function can change over time. Um, so just be super careful about that. 
Okay. But it say, you know, you feel like you have them on the perfect dose and their white blood cell count is still low and they're heading, as you mentioned, to neutropenia. Then, well, I often look at the overall situation, look at their doses of immune suppression. You know, are they highly sensitized? Is this a repeat transplant? Do they have other comorbidities that might increase their risk of infection? I always look at the absolute lymphocyte count. Raymond Rosanoble's group has done uh, nice work looking at that. You know, is the absolute lymphocyte count sort of well over a thousand, what I would call robust for our people? Or is it like, sometimes I look and it's like 300 or 400 or 80 mm -hmm. or something, like the absolute lymphocyte count super low. Those are people that when you stop the prophylaxis, CMB is totally going to come roaring in. When it really low absolute lymphocyte count, it's just going to come roaring back. A lot of our people, though, are in the like 600, 700, 800 range. So I would probably stop the prophylaxis because I, I, I never just cut it in half. I always say the cardinal sin is if you're dosed correctly for the kidney function, never cut the dose of balcancyclovir in half because you will have resistant refractory disease. And programs sure. that do that regularly get in a lot of trouble. So I usually just say stop the prophylaxis. If you want to put them on something to prevent disseminated zoster, depending on where they are in their trajectory, you could get them like some acyclovir or famvir or some type of uh, disseminated HSV prophylaxis. And then I, I would do weekly monitoring if, especially if the absolute lymphocyte count is either kind of low or if you're worried about them, I would throw in weekly CMB testing for probably about eight weeks. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, it's a positive, positive situation and those people get CMB pretty low rates. So if you're not that worried, you could just stop the prophylaxis a little early and then maybe just throw in some episodic monitoring along the way. But. Yeah, that's a super common situation. I think one that many of us have been, have become quite facile at doing because of the uh, leukopenia issues with Valga and Cyclovir. Yeah. No, I, I think the point that you make about getting the dosing correct for the renal function it is so important and so challenging and also often um, not necessarily managed by infectious disease doctors because the the patients are outpatients and they're they're managed by a uh, an often uh, fantastic but still very busy nephrology and nephrology nursing team so keeping up on all the little subtle changes can be uh, impossible actually yeah absolutely absolutely one thing i've noticed is that now that we're checking a lot more cystatin c's mm -hmm. Seems like the cystatin C shows that the GFR is somewhere like in the 20s and then the est the computer estimates it's somewhere in the 50s. Like that's a pretty dramatic, like, you know, so what number do you pick? Nephrology tells me to kind of pick somewhere in between the two, but it mm -hmm. sure can be challenging in these patients to accurately calculate that. Yeah, yeah, which which brings up a couple of uh, things in my mind. One is Cockroft Galt. That is still in the package insert, but I think that increasingly uh, we're walking away from using that and using the computer-generated and then, as you mentioned, the cystatin-generated numbers. And then the other thing that people have been talking about for a while, but I think has never gotten traction, and maybe for good reason, is gancyclovir levels. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. We never measure them. Some programs do. Some programs do it in pediatric patients. If you have good pharmacy support and ready availability of the test and you can have a rapid turnaround time, certainly if you're having problem 
I think that that might be worthwhile. Maybe people in whom you're worried about malabsorption or all kinds of things. Otherwise, it's it's interesting that it really hasn't taken off other than in some kind of more niche niche programs. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. I think if you're maybe if you're having problems or certain situations, you could look into it. But I don't know. Is that something that you do at Hopkins? We do not. It's something that we've talked about at various times, but it seems like uh, the the answer to the extent feasible is dose the uh, valgancyclovir correctly. And that requires sort of blocking and tackling as opposed to something really fancy, which is just being on top of the changing renal function. Yes, I totally, totally agree that that seems the most accurate and then readily available information as opposed to sending drug levels that come back later, which can be challenging. All right, so we'll move on to the next case, and this one is a uh, 22-year-old woman with IgA nephropathy kidney transplant, CMV positive donor. She's a negative recipient, which is, uh, I think that we're seeing more and more negative recipients out there, particularly on the younger age group. She's been receiving the six months of valgancyclovir. I do not have her absolute lymphocyte count when she came off of it, but based on what you just taught us, it was probably low because. Uh, as she came off of CMV prophylaxis with valgancyclovir a few weeks later, she was on a monitoring protocol. And at our hospital, what we do is um, once they come off the six months, we continue to monitor them on a regular basis. And in fact, at months, about seven after transplant, a month after being off valgancyclovir, her CMV viral load continued to uh, increase. First, it was uh, just positive, but can't be quantifiable. And then it was at near a thousand. So a decision was made to put her back on valgancyclovir. She was completely asymptomatic, and she the uh, after a few weeks of uh, the valgancyclovir, the viremia is gone. She's feeling well. It's only a laboratory test that we can pick up that anything is off. And the question is, when can we stop the uh, valgancyclovir in her? Yes, that is such a common, also the other big common situation. So this describes, um, we reviewed, Shiri Shubhagar, Dipali Kumar, and I reviewed the SRTR data, and this describes about 20% of transplants done in the U.S. You are right that the CMV negative recipient population is growing. So that's something that this will become potentially a more common situation. And they are the high-risk population. I mean, the vast majority of CMV disease is seen in the D plus R minus population. And then the vast majority of resistant refractory disease is also seen in this non-immune population. I will say it'll be very interesting um, to see what happens with CMV vaccines. Moderna has a CMV vaccine that's evolving. It's in right now in studies of a woman of childbearing age, but if that looks fruitful, it might go on to transplant patients, which would be amazing if we could turn this high-risk population into at least maybe a lower, lower-risk population. That would mm-hmm. be, it would probably require pre-transplant vaccination and all of that, but food for thought anyway. Yeah. So, right. So super common situation. And this whole asymptomatic but significant viremia situation is something that really shows the success of how good we are now at prophylaxis and early diagnosis and early treatment, and we're probably significantly decreasing the indirect effects of CMV. So this is a very common scenario now. 
it is a real challenge to know when you can when you stop treatment or where you're at the point where you have what we call in the CMP guidelines two negative or very low test results um you we often many i find many people are treating what we had in prior versions of the guidelines treating until negative but with the ultra sensitive assays which now have you know lower lower limits of detection of like 35 IU per mil or something like that we often don't really get people to stone cold negative I usually think that for the ultra-sensitive assays, if they're kind of below 200, 250 on plasma, then I kind of call that negative-ish. And if I get two of those, then we could stop treatment. And that's the juncture where you sort of, you look at them and you think, well, should I do secondary prophylaxis or just stop entirely? And so there are a couple of things to think about at that point. One, I would look at the absolute lymphocyte count. If it's robust, like if it's over a thousand, really even like 800, a thousand, you know, the higher it is, the less likely the CMV is going to come back. And there was actually work done by Brad Gardner when he was in David Steinman's group at Tufts Medical Center where they, they sort of broke it down. Um, the gold standard was, I think, an absolute lymphocyte count greater than 1500. But when the lower it is, the higher the risk of recurrent CMB. So you can predict who is going to uh, get recurrent disease. If it's a really low absolute lymphocyte count, I mean, so going back a sec, in the guidelines, we actually say secondary prophylaxis does not seem to be useful. And in general, we don't recommend it except in rare circumstances. The reason being is that it really just seems to push out the return of the CMB like you put them on secondary prophylaxis, but when you stop it, it CMV eventually comes back. I mean, these, this is sort of a population for whom we don't have a magical answer. I think during the pandemic, in order to keep people out of the hospital, out of, you know, away from needing medical attention, I have to say, I did start using a lot more secondary prophylaxis for this higher risk population. So interesting when I'm not even following my own guidelines recommendations, although I did I did. It was a small subset of the population, but for those people that seem super high risk for recurrent CMB, I tried to put them on secondary prophylaxis and continue it until the absolute lymphocyte count had really come up. If the absolute lymphocyte count's pretty high, I think you can just stop it. You may wish to throw in some monitoring. Sounds like your program's well organized to do routine monitoring. And I think that that's kind of how I think about that situation. Mm-hmm. We talk about prophylaxis, we had this hybrid approach, which is prophylaxis followed by monitoring. And I think that that's been quite useful. And clearly, you know, what your program's doing is when you're doing the monitoring, you can detect people when they have an early recurrence, which is usually asymptomatic and so easier to treat. And I think more limited impact from the indirect effects of CMB. So there's also this whole topic of interferon gamma release assays, um, mm-hmm. the T-spot CMB and the quantiferon CMB, and then Viracor has a CMB-specific T-cell assay. I think the Viracor assay is the only one that's currently commercially available in the United States. The other assays are um, approved in Europe and used somewhat, I think, but not large-scale necessarily. I will say that Viracor assay does not have published medical data showing that it is an effective screening tool. And I think actually Mike Eisen had data at ID Week showing that it is not very effective. Mm-hmm. I will say that, you know, it's 
Uh, we're not allowed to send that test because of the lack of published data showing a positive impact and it's relatively expensive. So I will say that I don't really, at this point, I mean, it would be kind of nifty if we had those and it might decrease some of that uh, need for screening and some of the risk of recurrent disease. Um, the T-spot and the quantiferon CMV have both been shown to be useful in that setting. I do think that if you just use your good old absolute lymphocyte count, okay, I'm a really frugal New Englander. I don't know. I was brought up at a time when we just, we didn't ha spend as much on diagnostics. Mm -hmm. uh, and at Penn, they were always like telling us to save money. I feel like that era has, well, gone away, but it might be returning given uh, recent financial issues in the medical field. But I think you can really just use the absolute lymphocyte count, and I'm not sure that you need to do the T-cell assays per se. Yeah, I wonder, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, would, would those studies that show efficacy, did they look at how much additional bang for the buck you're getting beyond an ALC? No, they did not. And so I am... I would love to have that information, you know, like just sending a differential. And I mean, obviously people, it's, it's not that it's like free, but it almost is because it's routinely checked anyway. Yep. Um, versus having to have an additional diagnostic. And then with the interferon gamma tests, um, interferon gamma release assay tests, it looks as though it's almost the trend in an individual. So it does seem like you probably have to send them multiple times. So it's a good question you have about how much additional bang does it add? If you can save a few hospitalizations, it might be worthwhile. But, you know, so I think this is this is all an emerging field. I, I love this field of thinking about the net state of immune suppression of an individual patient. Um, there's the quantiferon monitor that's looking at the net state of immunosuppression. There's the Torctino virus testing, which we're not really using much in the U.S., but they are using somewhat in Europe, especially in Austria, that looks as though it could predict the net state of immune suppression. Those are interesting and emerging topics. I think we should move towards an era of individualized or personalized medicine where we're thinking both about guidelines, but then about the individual mm -hmm. patient and just their individual risk. And how can we tailor by either doing a lot of follow-up testing because they're a high-risk situation or just saying, you know what, that guy's going to be fine, mm -hmm. really cutting down on diagnostics. It's, it's interesting that your group is able to do a lot of follow-up testing like after six months of prophylaxis just because we find that a lot of people have gone back to work or school or they're sort of disinterested with routine blood testing. And so sometimes that's another another situation is patient patient preference for how much monitoring they they would like to do at that point. Yeah, what drove that for us is about six or seven years ago, we, we said enough. And the reason we said enough is because we had several patients that came in with a viral load over a million and of these uh, late CMV cases. And then once your viral load is that high, then it, it, things get very complicated and sometimes phoscarnate makes an appearance. And so we we tasked a group led by uh, Willa Cochran, who was interviewed in an earlier episode. She's a nurse practitioner and also tasked our EPIC people to develop a dashboard for us on the uh, electronic medical record so that we can very closely follow the CMV donor positive recipient negative people 
through the first year, including six months after transplantation. So uh, including six months after finishing valgancyclovir and doing uh, routine CMV monitoring on them that then stretched out longer as they got further away from that six months. And since doing that, we have all but eliminated those, um, all but eliminated hospitalization for late CMV and, and certainly haven't seen one of these million viral loads in a long time. So it was worth the effort, which was uh, measured in the tens of thousands of dollars compared to, I'd say, millions that uh, and, and potential organ loss. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great work. I guess one thing, one little thing I wanted to include is just some people look at serology and we don't, serology has not been shown to be predictive. Mm-hmm. It seems like low-hanging fruit, like maybe check an IgM or IgG or whatever, but it's not actually been predictive and we don't recommend relying on it in any way for any of the post-transplant CMV management. We do recommend obviously only pre-transplant, you know, to predict risk, but post-transplant, it's really not, not been shown to be useful and can definitely be confounded by administration of any blood products. Like if they get FFP, that can come with CMV IgG. And so you might think that somebody, oh, they're now CMV IgG positive. Well, it's not their antibody. So, mm-hmm. you know, it can be befuddling. So we don't recommend checking checking serology. I hear a lot about that and we, we just don't recommend it. Yeah, that's very helpful because I think it can give you a false sense of security. Yes. So it is uh, raining outside right now and kind of cold and miserable uh, in, in typical D.C. fashion. The schools were uh, canceled because it might snow. Uh, probably not what they would do in New England. Nope. And it makes me think of, of warm beaches. And this next case is a uh, 49-year-old man with a history of end-stage adrenal disease for which he was on dialysis for several years. Now that he's been transplanted, family got an invitation to go to a destination wedding in a resort in the Dominican Republic. What are you telling Yes. And so they're going for something like a week to the Dominican Republic. In a controlled, semi-controlled setting in a, uh, in a resort. Okay. All right. Well, so this is a, and how far out from transplant did you say? It's about, it's been a year. He, he held tight for a year and now, and, and he was told that the first year was going to be rough and it was a little rough, but it's now over. And, uh, he's ready to, uh, go to this destination wedding. Well, I'm glad you asked because I actually love the topic of travel after transplant. And I actually have travel after transplant clinic, which has not been busy during the pandemic, tragically. But otherwise, you know, honestly, it's really like the icing on the cake. Like we do all this hard work for these folks. We get them through so much, you know, surgically, medically, et cetera. And then they want to get some normal life back and do some travel. And I'll, I'll tell you, I love seeing them. For me, it's really kind of rejuvenating just to, you know, see my the fruits of all of our labor and have them, you know, doing the things they want to do. I actually discussed this during my pre-transplant evaluation with many of them and say, like, do you plan to travel after transplant? And people will often say, like, yeah, really, you know, really want to or, you know, they have a history such that you're thinking they probably will. And then I make sure that they have things like hepatitis A vaccine prior to transplant. Hepatitis A vaccine works much better before immune suppression rather than afterwards. Anyway, so then a year out. So we do recommend people kind of stay within the United States for the first year after transplant and make sure that everything's stable. 
But then after that, we do say it's okay to travel abroad. We would recommend for the Dominican Republic, first of all, there is some malaria risk there. So you want to look at their malaria medications. And we would, you know, be careful about using something like mefloquin, which can be a prolonged QT interval. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that you could use chloroquine there. I'd have to look at that. Yeah, Quintacana had been chloroquine sensitive. And then, or malarone would be another one. Mm -hmm. But so I'd give them malaria prophylaxis. I would talk about mosquitoes because there's a lot of dengue, potentially mm. Zika, maybe chikungunya, you know, other arboviral things that could be kind of messy for them. I would talk about bringing lots of their medications with them. I would plan on even being out of country for an extra week or two, maybe unanticipated. You know, that's one thing during the pandemic is that Sometimes things have happened and people get stuck longer than expected. And you never want to be in a place where you're like hoping to buy some tacrolimus in a mm-hmm, usual mm-hmm. destination. Or you don't certainly don't want to run out of your transplant meds. Yeah. And I recommend they carry the meds with them in their original bottles. Also talk about food and water precautions. And even though they're in a resort, which is more I'm sure it's lower risk. I would still stick with foods that are served hot and fresh. I would avoid salads, other produce that isn't something you peel on your own. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of complaints about that. But realistically, we know that a good chunk of our foodborne illness in the United States comes from produce. Mm -hmm. So it should be, you know, bananas, mangoes, things they can peel on their own. And then avoiding things like street food. And then I often will give them either Cipro or Azithromycin to travel with in case they get horrible diarrhea. Most of my patients have actually, I will say people have had a fabulous time. Transplant patients are cautious. They know that they can't be careless with their precautions because bad things might happen. So I think in general, transplant patients have a much better outcome with travel compared to non-transplant patients who are like, eating the street food, having casual sex with new partners, all kinds of things that transplant patients know that if they do, they could have significant repercussions in a foreign country. Yeah, I would, I would say that transplant patients are quite aware that there is no such thing as a consequence-free action. Unfortunately, yes. But I will say, like, I've had really good success with hundreds and hundreds of transplant patients traveling pretty far and wide. I do recommend they contact me if they're before they buy tickets, if they're sort of going to a country where they think that might be pretty risky. I often like to discuss risk. And, you know, if they're going on safari, there are destinations that could be uh, more manageable risk situations compared to others. So. I often say I'm both an infectious disease specialist and a travel agent. <laughs> yeah. One of the challenges that sometimes happens with these types of visits is that the insurance company doesn't always see them as important as we do. Yeah. So, you know, I actually, so what I try for the visits, and so the visits aren't always covered and not all yeah. the vaccines are covered. You know, one thing I actually take this opportunity to review them as the overall immunocompromised host. I will take that opportunity to make sure that their vaccines are up to date. Mm-hmm. 
So I try to make it more of a visit with the, it's usually a follow-up because I've met many of them. And then mm-hmm. it's an overall like immunization due, at-risk for opportunistic infection, transplant recipient. And then I include the travel medicine counseling uh-huh. in it. But they're often in need of some, you know, Prevnar 20 or flu sure. shot or any of the other vaccines. It's a new recommendation that we give Shingrix to all transplant patients that came out uh, a year ago now from the yeah. CDC. And so not everyone had been up to date on that. So I actually mm-hmm. take the moment to make sure they're, you know, are they somebody who like, by the way, maybe they should be getting a little more acyclovir prophylaxis. Should they be on Bactrim for some reason? You know, what's What's gone on recently, you know, usually those answers are no, but I kind of review them as a overall package. I do think that, you know, whenever possible, the laying on of hands of the infectious disease specialist, that's actually a funny expression because I do a lot of virtual mm-hmm. medicine. So, you know, the laying on of hands of the infectious disease specialist can result in overall significant lower rates of complications. So I rarely see someone in like kind of isolated travel medicine visit in part because of the coverage issues, because I really feel that I want to encourage them to come to travel clinic. And then because I'm doing all these other things too. And like, by the way, I find out they have three UTIs in the past year. Oh, well, mm-hmm. let's talk about that. You know what I, you know what I mean? That um, usually transplant patients have stuff that you can kind of figure out some other things that you should be taking care of as well during the visit. Absolutely. There's always plenty to talk about with them. My little thing is telling me that there's less than a minute left and it's less than a real minute, not an NFL minute where there'll be a break. So we're going to finish here. Thank you so much for joining us. And I have at least another two more hours of talking with you just to uh, teach myself as to what's going on. So thanks and to our listeners until uh, next time. Bye-bye. 